Hello and welcome to the Leaders' Council podcast, the podcast for the people who run the country and the people who keep the country running. You join us on yet another sunny day here in an empty capital. I'm Matthew O'Neill, and today, as always, we ensure that we have a variety of distinct perspectives on leadership. First, we're joined by Todd Kelman, Managing Director of the Cardiff Devils Ice Hockey Club, who play in the British Elite Ice Hockey League. Todd, hello. Hi there. Thank you for having me. Thank you for coming on the show. Uh, now, normally, we'd uh, charge headlong into the subject of leadership, but considering the ongoing COVID-19 pandemic, I would be remiss if I didn't ask how this has affected uh, your club. Yeah, I mean, it's it's affected uh, our club and, I, I guess, our league and every sports club in, in the country and probably in the world. So um, we, we were in an a better situation than a lot of leagues and a lot of clubs because we were right at the tail end of our season. So um, we didn't, uh, we missed out on about four weeks of the season. So it was, you know, financially it was tough, but it wasn't a complete disaster in Mm -hmm. the sense that we should be able to, you know, we'll we'll recover and our league will recover. Um, We, you know, we basically missed out on four games, four home games, which is a lot of money, but we'll be okay. And uh, how does it work with league standings in this uh, current uh, pandemic? Since you weren't able to finish uh, the season, uh, how are these decisions being made? Yeah, so we um, we basically took the final league standings. We didn't we didn't award a, a champion, but we the the final league standings stood. We didn't name a champion, mm-hmm. which is unfortunate because we were in first place. <laughs> so <laughs> that is unfortunate. Um, um, but. Uh, but the, the the winner of our league gets to um, represent our league in the Champions Hockey League, which is a European-wide competition, and we're representing our league in the Champions Hockey League for next season. So Fantastic. Uh, fantastic. Yeah. And uh, does that look like it's going to be an active year, or have there been plans made uh, to get around the uh, coronavirus uh, restrictions? We're really um, subject, I guess, to government um, advice really because we're not a league like the premiership that could survive with um, games without without spectators so of course. Um, our league I guess the one lucky thing is we're an indoor sport so we're not really um, tied to certain dates like if we have to push the season back to start a little later than normal then we can mm-hmm. and right now uh, our league the discussions that we're all having is all 10 teams are planning to go ahead and we just we have I guess you could say we have a plan A plan B plan C Plan D and probably a plan E. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Um, well, we should come to the subject of leadership. I always like to start this part of the conversation off by asking the same simple question. What does the word leader mean to you? Well, um, I guess I guess being a leader is, is the way I've always thought about it is, is making, making the, the best decisions um, that aren't always the most popular decisions, but, but doing the right thing. Um, and that's kind of the way I've always approached it. You know, you're not always going to make the popular decisions or, or, or do what people maybe want you to do. But uh, I've always tried to put the, as a leader, put the organization um, ahead of any, any, you know, personal or any worries about um, issues with individuals. Uh, it's more about, for, for me, it's always been about trying to do the right thing. Now, uh, of course, leadership comes in different forms. What's your tactic uh, for leading your team? Uh, I mean, real. I, I guess 
tough question. <laughs> um, my tactic, I guess, for, for leading my team, I, I, I take, I take a, an approach where I try to give the people that work for me in, cause we, I mean, in, a, in the sports team, we have a lot of different um, parts of the business, I guess, like any business, but we have, we have the sporting side, but we mm-hmm. also then have the business side of things. So, um, and I'm kind of overseeing both of them. So uh, I try to give the, the people that I trust to, to run those departments for me. I try to give them as much free range to do that and, and try to be, try to be, a, I guess, a, um, a good manager uh, in the right. sense that give them, you know, give them this, the freedom to run things the way they should and, and always be someone there for them to come back to. I, I you know, this idea of micromanagement is, is, something that I try to stay away from and, and also getting involved with things that, that aren't really my business in the sense that, yes, you know, I, I might be in charge of the hockey side of things, but you know, run, me running down to the locker room after a loss and screaming at the team does no good because, <laughs> um, you know, we, t- we take an approach that like, you know, nobody's perfect. We're all going to make mistakes. We're not going to win every game. Um, we're always trying to grow as a team and trying to leader and trying to, um, move on and, We've always, I mean, the, the approach, we have a big sign in our locker room um, when you walk in the door and it says Extreme Ownership, which is a book written by a couple of Navy SEALs from the U.S. But it, it basically the principle of that is everyone has to own their own department. And whether you're the, the goalie on the team, the one of the scorers on the team, or you're the, the coach or the, the sales guy or, you know, the secretary in the office, you all have your own department and, and we leave it up to you to, to do the best job you can and, and own, own your department, I guess, and own the stuff you have. So, you know, own up to the mistakes and learn from them rather than um, blaming others for why something went wrong. And, and, and I think it's worked. And I think, you know, that, that idea of extreme ownership is probably the one guiding principle that we have across the whole business. Now, is there a culture uh, difference in the leadership styles within this league uh, compared to the NHL? Uh, I think I, I think the, the the real difference between us and, and larger sports organizations in the NHL in particular is just the sheer numbers of people we have. Like I think you know most people in a, in a smaller uh, like a minor league sports business would would know how to do every single part of the business and, and at least on the business side of things. So like my coach doesn't just coach; he he recruits, he helps find housing, he helps organize flights. He helps organize travel. He, he's, you know, he's a general manager in the sense of putting a team together. He also the coach. He's also head of hockey operations. He's probably, you know, head of recruitment. He's probably involved in the business operations. And that's just my coach for myself. Same thing. Like, well, to be honest, it sounds a lot, it sounds a lot like the NHL in the, in the forties and fifties. So basically you're kind of at that level of development. Do you see ice hockey within uh, the UK and within Europe in general coming up to anywhere near uh, the popularity of uh, the NHL in North America? I think in the UK, we're always going to be, you know, a a minor, a minor league sport just because of the popularity of of football and uh, rugby. Um, Mm. But but across Europe, I mean, there are countries and, and the experience of being in the Champions Hockey League has, has opened our eyes to how popular the sport of hockey is in some of these countries. Like, I, I would say it's it's as big or, uh, or bigger than football in Sweden. Um, mm-hmm. Same within Finland. Uh, it's huge in Switzerland. It's huge in Czech Republic. Um, 
we, we're just, you know, in the UK, you're never going to come close to football or soccer, depending on where you're listening from in the world. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's, uh, let's go back to the beginning of your career when you first started out your working life. Did you have any particular role models who shaped you in the way that you lead today? You know what? I, I didn't, I, I, I really didn't have a chance to learn from the business side of things because I came from, you know, I, I started, I was, I was playing and then I got thrown into running a team right from playing. So I actually, you know, my apprenticeship was almost like, here you go. You're now in charge of the team and you're, and you're still playing for the next few months and, until you get your, your feet under the desk. And I wouldn't say I had a, a, an apprenticeship with that. Um, I, the good thing was I had an, an owner at the time, a, a gentleman named Jim Gillespie who owned uh, the team I was running, the, the Belfast Giants at the time who gave me a long leash and, and really he, he was more like, um, you know, somebody could bounce ideas off of, but he wasn't involved in the day-to-day operation. So I had a lot of, I always say I had a lot of opportunity to screw up, which is a great way to learn mm. um, how to do something right. So I would, you know, if I thought something would work, I'd try it. And if it didn't work, you know, I'd take notes and remember not to do it next time. And if it did work, then, then great. And, and he was, you know, as far as, someone guiding me on how to, and I guess what he taught me was the value of, of, you know, being honest with people and, and, you know, being true to your word and doing business by handshakes and making sure that, um, you know, you always kept your promises with businesses and same with players. And we've tried to do that as much as we can. And, you know, we've, we've tried to, at least in Cardiff, try to run it in a way that's not like a lot of minor league sports. Like the players aren't pieces of meat that we get rid of here and there or, Mm -hmm. or, you know, nickel and dime over over small issues or get rid of at the drop of a hat. We've always tried to um, make them part of the organization in the sense of almost bring them on board and, and whether they're signed to one or two-year deals, they know they're here for that time. Mm-hmm. We try to take away every every opportunity to give them an excuse of not to win and, and make it as easy as possible to have success on the ice, and, and it's worked. Now, uh, we're almost out of time, but before I let you go, uh, if I ask you to objectively identify the greatest leader, living or dead, who would that be? And you're not allowed to say Gretzky. The greatest leader, sports leader, or, or in general? Leader? Wow, great question. Um, you know, I, I I'm I'm kind of uh, I've got a couple people that I, I'm kind of obsessed with mm-hmm. everything they do. Mm-hmm. Um, I love Barack Obama, mm-hmm. <laughs> and 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 I think that you know if if there was ever a chance that if 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 they could have changed the rules on how long someone could be president, I would have loved to him to be president for about twenty years because just to see what he could have done. I think he was handcuffed a lot by by the rest of the government, but he he was just every time he speaks, even now when he speaks, he just he just commands such a presence, and, and I love the way he approaches. Um, just this whole approach to leadership and, and, and what he did. Um, and then another one that I've read a lot about is Nelson Mandela, who obviously, you know, was a worldwide leader that I think everyone would probably list in their top, top few leaders across, uh, across you know, history. But yeah, that would probably be the two that stand out for me. And what does the next 12 months have in store for the Devils? Hopefully, hopefully it has a season. <laughs> and hopefully, um, you know, hopefully we're in a few months, we're talking about how crazy it was that this virus shut down the world for all these months. Mm. Um, you know, I think, I think I'm, I'm optimistic about uh, the future in, in the sense that I don't think a world can exist without, um, 
you know, I don't think for the, for the rest of our lives, this idea of social distancing and, and not having mass gatherings and not having concerts and theater and music venues and things like that, because um, I think it'll be, you know, it, it's, it's crazy to think that we'll be, you know, in, in a year or two, we'll be still worried about lining up two meters from people. I think it's going to change the world in the sense we're all going to be more uh, aware of hygiene and we're going to wash our hands a lot more and we're going to stay distant from strangers and not hug and kiss when we say hello to people. But I think we have to get back to some sort of life where, you know, you can, and I'm not just saying it's sports, but, you know, I, I, I shudder to think of a, of a world where we wake up and we go to work and we pay our bills and then we sit at home. Um, you know, mm. part of, part of the enjoyment of life is, is, is we all work hard in, in whatever we do in order to enjoy the moments that we have, which might be sport or music or theater or mm-hmm. um, going for a walk or going traveling. And, and right now all of that is kind of on hold. And um, I just hope it gets back to normal. Well, absolutely. Uh, Todd, it's been an absolute pleasure having you on the program. You have to come back on the show when things get back to some semblance of normalcy. Absolutely. Thank you very much. Thank it's been you, an Todd. honor. That okay. was Todd Kelman, Managing Director of the Cardiff Devils Ice Hockey Club. And now, if you haven't heard it before, is my exclusive interview with our chairman, Lord Blunkett. Lord Blunkett, welcome. Thank you very much. It's very good to be with you. Um, well, of course, uh, nothing is being said uh, at the moment other than COVID-19, uh, which uh, we must touch on. Um, what would your message be to small businesses who are trying to keep going? Well, I think the last ones standing will be the ones that thrive when we get back to some sort of normality. So it's have confidence and courage. Obviously, take advantage as far as you can of the government help. I think that Rishi Sunak, the chancellor, has gone about as far as you could have expected Mm -hmm. in the circumstances. There are obviously small businesses that fall between the cracks, those who uh, don't have um, defined premises, can't benefit from the business rate waiver, uh, have not really been able to demonstrate that they can uh, adhere to the PAYE for furloughing staff and, of course, whether they can receive the the grant, 10000 or 25000 all, all of those who can uh, are obviously able at least to benefit from that for the time being and look to the future. But I think the second thing to say, and they don't need me to tell them this as a politician who who did once do a business studies qualification, which is that it will be a different world and being able mm. to think about how that world will look in a year's time and be creative about it and learn from not just what's happening to you at this moment in time, but to others around you and the sector that you're working in, that will be really important. Do you feel that the long-term uh, effects of uh, the COVID-19 outbreak uh, will in some ways be positive uh, for British industry? Well, only in the sense that people are having to be creative. They're having to adjust and innovate. Therefore, they're thinking about more productive, if you like, greater productivity ways of delivering the same service or delivering the same products. And in that sense, I think we'll have temporarily at least very much higher unemployment than we've become used to, but we'll probably have a burst of productivity, mm-hmm. which will help with the recovery, whether it will help with the inequity of the way in which our economy is imbalanced, both between services and product productivity and, and the production of goods and services, I'm not sure. 
What we will need to try and do is to ensure that the geographic imbalance that exists is, as far as humanly possible, is dealt with by both uh, the entrepreneurship and innovation from the bottom up and targeted government help, which will still be needed. And we are now in the throes of the kind of borrowing that we saw back in 2008 to save the banking and economic system. We're, we're having to do that to save the whole of our productive business and mm -hmm. commerce. And I think that will have to be sustained for some time. Do you feel that people will take a second look at global supply chains in the wake of this outbreak? I think there's going to be much more creative ways of using local supply and linking up inside sectors much more effectively. And I hope that the Leaders' Council will be able to play a part in that in the sense that people who mm. have something in common, a synergy in terms of what they're delivering, whether it's a service or whether it's manufacturing or whatever, uh, will be able to see that there's a, a, a good outcome from knowing the sector better, linking with people, not just geographically locally, but those in this country who may not have been on the radar in terms of what they produced for the supply chain. And, of course, um, ensuring, because there's quite a lot of fraud going on as we speak with um, people getting into cyber attacks, that they'll also take account of going into the the cybersecurity side effectively as well. The more we are online, the more people who are working from home, the more vulnerable those businesses and their supply chain become. And that's something to think about as well. How important is strong leadership at the moment? Well, I actually think that it's brought to the fore leadership in a whole range of areas from obviously government itself. And there's been ups and downs with the Prime Minister's a severe illness, but all the way through the public and private sector, people have, to use the jargon, stepped up. And they've shown uh, local, regional, national level the kind of leadership that Britain historically was very good at. Regrettably, we've not seen, seen the same on the international scene for mm. all kinds of reasons, uh, but maybe we will in future. So I think out of this will come experience of people who have seen an opportunity to do good as well as seen an opportunity to provide a good uh, a service or goods, uh, including, for instance, shortages uh, for the health and social care uh, system, um, the food chain and the like. Uh, but also, I think, in terms of seeing the, the synergy between the private and the voluntary sector and using people's uh, commitment to each other in a very positive way. I, I'm not sentimental about this. Things will revert. Mm -hmm. But actually, I think there is a, a kind of moment of moral judgment of people feeling that they've got a role to play outside the immediate survival that they're engaged in. And if we can hang on to a little bit of that social responsibility, that will be a very positive outcome. Absolutely. Now, what's your broad view of how the government is responding to this? Are you broadly supportive of their measures? Well, it may surprise people to hear that, that I have been very supportive. Of course, there's been legitimate criticisms about the speed of response on protective equipment and on issues relating to testing. But my own view is very similar to the 
challenge that was made to the Prime Minister of Italy when people said, why didn't you close Italy down faster? And he said, a fortnight before we did it, I would have been considered to be a madman and nobody would have agreed to do it mm. if I'd tried to move too quickly. And I, I think that's something that we need to reflect on here in the UK. We, we may have seen the signals elsewhere uh, across the world and taken them more seriously at the time. Hindsight is a wonderful thing. But as someone who's uh, had his life in uh, the opposite uh, political party to the, the present government, I think that with some hiccups and mistakes, they've not done a bad job in what has been incredibly difficult circumstances. And you're absolutely right. In a, in a liberal uh, democracy that we live in, it's, it's very difficult for people to swallow orders given to them from government. Um, well, the, the UK and, um, and the US, and to some extent to the Scandinavian countries, have a very different interest, uh, history and, and therefore interest in maintaining the freedom to decide and the persuasion and mm. consent that's required. Uh, those countries that have experienced one way or another totalitarianism over the last century have a slightly different way of coming at this. Mm. I don't want to exaggerate it, but I think that that's why getting the balance right of getting people to go along with what you want them to do in their interests as well as the nation as a whole is a sensible proportional balance. And I think we now need to adjust to the coming out of the crisis gradually, uh, readjusting to recovery uh, in the same way. Now, something you've mentioned recently on this balance is uh, the police overreach and the enforcement of the COVID-19 uh, structures that have been put in place. What have they done right, and where have they gone too far? Well, I think that they were interpreting what was not necessarily as clear yeah. advice as it might have been for all kinds of reasons, because people were feeling their way. I think what's come out of it has been uh, a demonstration by local police services in some parts of the country that they could get people to do what was needed without the heavy hand of drones overhead mm. or people being told that they you know, shouldn't be walking in the street because this was all about self-isolation, not incarceration. It was about getting people not to pass the infection on to each other and therefore to provide distance rather than to make our lives a misery. Those police services that adopted that policing by consent and chipping people along did really well. Those who went over the top, I think, soon got a very substantial pushback. And one of the strengths of our democracy is that you could have that debate. People could say, I'm terribly sorry, we, we think the police force in our area has gone over the top. And that in itself is a constraint and uh, a readjustment. That, that's another strength of um, living in a country where you can have opinions and express them without actually being thought to be a fool. Now, of course, uh, the government has faced criticism uh, that they were slow to react, uh, and Boris Johnson wasn't present at the early COVID-19 COBRA meetings. Now, uh, Number 10 has claimed that this is normal practice. Uh, the health secretary often chairs COBRA meetings uh, related to health. Uh, does this tally with your experience as a secretary of state, or would you have expected the PM uh, to be more hands-on during the initial stages? I think different prime ministers do have a very different style. And Boris's style, which I think will now be 
considerably adjusted was very swashbuckling. In some senses, delegating is a good thing, uh, as every leader of every business or public service knows. Those who try to pull too much into themselves end up with a massive bottleneck, a great uh, failure of trust, and the inability of people to show what they're worth and to, to demonstrate their capability. So I, I, I'd be very wary of jumping in and saying he was wrong to delegate the essential COBRA meetings. What I was surprised about was that he didn't um, chair the first couple because mm-hmm. my experience with Tony Blair for the eight years I was in cabinet was that Tony was a great delegator, but he would get a grip to begin with, watch what the difficulties were, and then give people direction and confidence to be able to get on with it. So looking back, I think Boris himself probably thinks, God, I wish I'd spotted the signals from elsewhere in the world more rapidly, and I'd just been there. However, this also raises another issue. All of us in positions of leadership need good teams around us. Mm -hmm. I think after this is over, he will be assessing those who really did step up and those who demonstrated their inadequacy. I think we'll probably end up in a year's time with a much stronger cabinet than we have today. Well, absolutely. And of course, uh, we've seen a a significant uh, drop in the visibility of uh, certain special advisors like Donald Cummings uh, during this uh, entire period. So it'd be interesting to see how that pans out. Um, Well, it's certainly readjusted the role of those behind the scenes with those who should be taking the decisions having received advice, obviously, there's been a complete transformation in the profile of experts, if I might use that term, who'd previously been denigrated. Mm -hmm. Scientists, medics, people with behavioral science uh, understanding. My only criticism was, were we getting wide enough advice? Were we narrowing it too much to a couple of key centers in London? But that's because I've always been adverse to everything being London-centric. I think there's great expertise, wisdom, experience out in the sticks, and uh, we should use it. Uh, Rightly so. Um, Now, was pandemic planning part of your time as a minister, particularly perhaps uh, when you were Home Secretary? Well, it was, but it was on the back of risk arising out of counter-terrorism measures. Uh, I was the Home Secretary for three months, when the attack took place in September 2001 on the World Trade Center and beyond, we did an enormous amount of uh, scenario planning, both desktop and and real. On the back of that, it was very heavily orientated to future developing terrorism risk. I certainly got involved with talking about pandemics. I remember being at a seminar in Edinburgh, where the university had done a lot of work itself on the issue of pandemics. And of course, we we saw SARS and other things emerging. I I think it would, people criticize the government for not picking up the report from 2015, five years ago. I think that what happens is human nature kicks in. You deal with what you're immediately faced with. Mm. You you can you can sponsor reports. And this is true of business planning, of course, as well, and scenario planning for what business continuity will look like, recovery plans for business, what will happen if um, there's a cyber attack, what happens if there's an energy sh- 
shut down. Um, these kind of things you, you can look at, but you're immediately turning your eyes to what's in front of you. And had we picked up a bit more on the danger from Ebola and SARS and what have you in the past, then we might have said, what if something hits us in the developed nations that we don't have a vaccine for, mm -hmm. that we can't immediately whisk up uh, protective materials or equipment or, for that matter, medicines that help with recovery, all of which we now see are a danger. I think this will make an enormous difference to the planning for the for the years ahead. I hope it will be widened so that we don't just look at what's happened, but very rarely do you see something exactly repeat itself. Some of the circumstances will be, but others won't. So that's why I've put emphasis in what I talk about on looking at the other virus, the cyber attack uh, scenario, mm -hmm. which could be just as dangerous in a, uh, a world of just-in-time provision. One of the miracles of uh, the modern developed world, except for the very poor, has been the distribution of food. A lot of it on computerized, uh, technologically advanced systems. If that were to come down, we'd be in real trouble. So I think we need to think those sort of scenarios as well. So have a full plan across uh, both sectors, uh, biological warfare, pandemics, and uh, cyber warfare. Yes, and to do so on different levels, I think again, thinking of thinking global but acting local, we mm. need a lot more to think about what would happen if something took shape that actually broke down those national and global chains and how we would cope and without uh, obviously we've got enough fear and anxiety to last a lifetime without uh, creating even more anxiety we can think about those things for the future in a more rational way i think now aside from the physical uh, threat of the virus one of the things that people are vastly worried about is the effect on uh, the economy not just national economy but also the world economy um, now, it has been said by certain parties, um, and uh, I'd like to garner your uh, thoughts on this. Is there a danger of the effects of the lockdown being even worse than those of the virus? Were it be prolonged, I fear that that balance would tip the other way. It is about proportionality. It is about balance. It's the wisdom of Solomon, really, to, to get the moment right when you start to move and then to move quickly. There's no doubt whatsoever that we are stocking up, not just on the economic and employment front, which will be devastating enough, but on the health and social well-being front, enormous challenges. And they will need careful handling because there's a lot of people whose lives, for a variety of reasons, are at risk in the future on a scale that we've been dealing with over the, the immediate handling of the pandemic, concentrating really hard on those affected by COVID-19, those sadly who have died or been seriously incapacitated, that will roll over into the economic, the social, the mental health and cultural well-being of the nation. And that will need all of us to pull together as well. Absolutely.
Now, do you believe the government's doing enough for business? I think that the speed of reaction once the scale of the pandemic was clear was very good. I've praised Ricky Sunak for his action. Uh, remember, a chancellor who only just come into office was planning to deliver the budget in the middle of March and has had three, at least three equivalent budgets since. I think he's handled it very well, understandably worried now about what we're doing to our economy. The level of borrowing is sustainable because of low interest rates, but it reaches a point, of course, where it tips over so that you can't then do the kind of structural investment requirements that the government were laying out before and in the March budget. And those will have their consequences as well as a planned payback over many years. I think we've learned something over the last few months. We, we needed to take immediate action. We don't want another round of austerity equivalent from 2010 through to 2019. I don't think the nation, on the back of what's happened and the challenges we have, could take that. And therefore, we need a different plan, economic plan, over a much longer period, just as we did from the Second World War all the way through to 2002, when the final American loans were paid off. Now, of course, uh, one thing that's on everyone's lips, um, how much longer do you believe uh, that the lockdown can go on for? I believe that we need to be substantially back in action as an economy in June. This obviously is led in terms of places where people would meet in large numbers, having to uh, adjust to the fact that it will be longer for them. And sadly, that will involve business closures. It's why the Chancellor extended the furlough scheme to the end of June. Mm -hmm. But unless we, we get things moving in June, I think we'll run into the summer where all kinds of services and industries will have a chain reaction effect. And what happens with one will then have a major impact on another. And then you get the skittle effect where things get knocked down that you hadn't perceived were going to be affected. So I very much, if I were in government, and I always think of things in that context, what would I do if I were in government? I would be on the side from the second week in May, on the side of the Hawks, in terms of saying we've got to start moving and we've got to do so with the collaboration and cooperation of the public who have got the message, who did behave, who responded magnificently. Let's try and get back, perhaps you know, doing things differently for a time, but substantially getting back to business as usual. Unless we do that, then those areas that can't and wouldn't expect to be back in action immediately get pushed further into the middle of the year in the autumn, and then they become unsustainable. Now, of course, um, one of the other major developments we've had recently, uh, the changes in the, uh, the Labour Party. So if we could just uh, speak on the Labour Party for uh, a while. Um, this might sound like uh, an obvious question, but uh, how does uh, Secure uh, differ from Mr Corbyn? Well, I'm biased because I believe the Labour Party um, has come out of four and a half years of a black hole of a nightmare. 
mm. uh, where it neither represented a, a, a credible opposition nor uh, an electable government, and the combination was to let those who supported the Labour Party and needed some of its policies uh, let them down very badly. Sir Keir Starmer both is a highly intelligent uh, professional lawyer who, as Director of Public Prosecutions, led the service well, uh, had to take difficult decisions at a time of austerity, understands the world beyond Labour members, but has been able to do business with those who originally supported Jeremy Corbyn mm -hmm. and was able to command support from them. His creation of a balanced shadow ministerial team has been very encouraging. Um, I, I supported Lisa Nandy, who he's made shadow foreign secretary, because I thought she understood the north of England and uh, the, uh, the disaffected uh, Labour, former Labour voters. But I believe that Sakira has taken on board those who have something really sensible to offer. And I believe he will be both a, a great leader of the opposition, more importantly, he will then present himself as a credible alternative prime minister. And all governments need an alternative government at their shoulder. Mm. Uh, it was true of us from 97, and it took the Conservatives some time to recover and to get to that position, but they did, and the Labour Party will, and that's crucial for our democracy. All of us need to understand and appreciate that a living, breathing, functioning democracy requires uh, a credible, confident, and uh, in many ways uh, supportable opposition, as well as a government that we clearly want to do well, because none of us want as we didn't with the COVID crisis, none of us want the government to fail. We want to see our economy recover. We want our social well-being to be taken into account. We want to overcome deep-seated inequality and poverty. And we want to do it with enterprise and entrepreneurship and business playing their role. And that is about leadership nationally, locally, in the private and the public sector, people with ideas with confidence with the ability to pull teams around them above all to have some idea of what it is they want to achieve and a very good idea as to how to achieve it now of course one of the biggest problems secure is facing will be tackling the party's anti-semitism problem uh, there has been a recent internal report that has been quite damning uh, what's your response uh, to that report and what does secure need to do in response well, there are two reports. One, which is being produced by the Quality and Human Rights Commission, uh, which he will, and has already indicated, will implement in full. The second was a leaked report put together by the supporters of Jeremy Corbyn, 800 pages of private uh, interchanges on social media, which he has, Sakir uh, Starmer, set up an investigation to identify uh, who did it, who leaked it, what the content was, does it have any salience and lessons for us, and where necessary action will be taken. So I hope that as he moved very quickly to reassure the Jewish community, so he will be able to take the necessary steps 
to back up that reassurance with the kind of action that says that this was a blight on a historic great political party that all of us, all of us were ashamed of. We've been able to put that behind us and to move on to facing the future with confidence. What's the one king, uh, key thing that Sakira needs to do to restore Labour as an election-winning party? I think Sakir Starmer's major challenge is to convince sceptical voters that Labour has not only reverted to a party that they can support because they can see it acting, developing, presenting as a credible alternative government, mm -hmm. but also that the lessons have been learnt from the fiasco from 2015 onwards. In other words, there have to be very clear signals of substantial change, not just the right words, not just reassurance that we're not uh, going back to some of the crazier uh, policies, but actually that we've understood why the electorate rejected those policies so substantially in December 2019. If people get that message, they'll understand that the Labour Party has changed, as it did in the 1980s and early 90s, to become the electable government with the greatest majority, and historic majority, even greater than 1945, which I was privileged to be able to take advantage of in 1997 when I joined the Cabinet. Now, I know what your answer is going to be to this question, but uh, indulge me. Um, do you think Sakir has what it takes to be PM? Yes, I do. I think he has the background, he has the experience, he has the professionalism, he has the forensic uh, mindset, and he has the confidence to have put a team around him which will ensure that it will work. And those elements are true of all leaders. Ideas, ability to build a team, to have confidence in that team, uh, and to be able to demonstrate leadership in practice, sometimes at the most difficult times. And, you know, the Leaders' Council, those sharing their thoughts with uh, um, the kind of thing that we're doing now uh, with uh, a podcast, but also joining us in linking up in that network of people who can support and help each other and learn from mm -hmm. each other, that is what needs to be done in politics as it needs to be done in business. Thank well, you very much indeed, Matthew. Well, really thank you for coming on the, uh, the program. It's been a, an absolute pleasure, and I look forward to speaking with you again. Thank you very much, and good luck to all those listening in what has been a nightmare scenario. Good luck for the future. Have courage have confidence, and yes, listen to those who know more about business than I ever will. Thank you, Lord Blunkett. Thank you. This has been the Leaders' Council podcast. Thank you for celebrating excellence in leadership with us. I have been your host, Matthew O'Neill. Until next time, goodbye. Thank you for listening to our podcast. The views expressed within the podcast do not reflect the views of the Leaders' Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, its parent company or subsidiaries, members of staff, other guests, or any other person therein associated.